There's a lot of those words that are a little difficult to pronounce in the Old Testament. And uh, Zechariah wouldn't be all that difficult, but he's a prophet, and he wrote these words to a man named Zerubbabel. For all of you young people who are looking for a good biblical name for your next child, <laughs> you might try on Zerubbabel because there's not a lot of competition for that name right now. says, then he said to me, this is Zechariah, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, a, a flat place. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, I want to explain what's transpiring here. There was a, an evil empire, the Babylonian Empire, and they had invaded Israel many years before. And uh, they uh, destroyed the city. And the, the primary identity place that gave the people of Israel their identity was the temple where they worshiped the one true God. They were monotheistic. Everyone else served multiple gods across the nations of the world, but one nation served one God, the one true God, and their temple was a representation of that. When, the, when Babylon invaded, they, they destroyed the city. They devastated it. I mean, just razzed it. It was just nothing but rubble. And they also destroyed the temple. It was just nothing but rubble as well. They just tore everything apart. And then what they did was they, they took all the young, brilliant minds and uh, they, they confiscated the people and took the people and therefore the willpower out of that nation with them back to Babylon where they would go through an indoctrination process to teach them to be like Babylonians. Well, this is where you read the story of a guy named Daniel. Remember Daniel who... Uh, spent some time in the lion's den and the lions couldn't eat him or he had three friends that they threw into a fiery furnace and the furnace was so hot it burned up everyone else who tried to throw him in there but they kind of walked around and the Lord was in the fiery furnace with them and they didn't seem to be bothered at all by that. Well, that's those amazing stories about how God was looking after these young Israelites who would not compromise their testimony for God. Well, during that process of time, this Daniel guy he come across a scroll of a prophet named Jeremiah. Now, evidently, it had been lost or misplaced, and he finds it, and he begins to read it. And then he reads in there where Jeremiah prophesied that this captivity was not forever. They wouldn't be in Babylon forever. It's a 70 years duration. And he calculated that they were nearing the end of this uh, uh, incarceration, and the prophet has said that it would be over. They would be set free. Now, what some of us would do at that point, if we didn't, if we received this prophecy and believed it, we would be throwing a party, a going home party. We're getting out of here. This is a get out of jail free card. Wonderful. But he didn't do that. Instead, what he did was he gave himself to fasting and praying for 21 days that this prophecy would be fulfilled. Now, that tells us something. The promises of God are never passively received. They're actively laid hold of. 
and a demonstration that you really believe these promises are from God is that you partner with him. You see, Jesus taught us to pray that way. He said, when you pray, you pray this way. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, as heaven makes known to us here on earth, God speaks to us and makes known heaven's will and purpose, we call that back to God and partner with him in prayer. Oh God, what you said you're going to do here on earth, we understand it now. We've received your understanding. We've received your word. Bring it to pass. And so you partner with him. And that's important to know. The promises of God are never passively received. God said it, so I'm just going to wait for it to happen. No, no. They're actively laid hold of. And that's a statement of your faith. Well, he's praying for it. And it happens. And so they go back. Well, some of them do. They begin to go back. And during this period of time, there were two prophets that played a very important role. And one of them was named Haggai. And one of them was Zechariah. Now, Haggai is kind of my kind of prophet because he's a hillbilly prophet. He's kind of a redneck prophet. And he just basically says it the way it is. Where Zechariah was one of those mystical kind of floaty prophets. He'd get these weird visions. That, what? And he, he would get so many weird visions at times that even he didn't know what they would mean. And this was a case just verses previous to this. Had this kind of weird vision. And God said... Do you know what this means? And he says, no, I don't know what this means. I said, well, if you're in good company, I don't know either. And then God interprets that vision for him and said, well, this is the word of the Lord for Zerubbabel, which brings us to the scripture we read today. Now, I have to admit, when I look at this vision he had and God's interpretation of it, I would have never got that out of there. <laughs> and Zechariah didn't either. But Haggai was a guy that prophesied directly to the people, and Zechariah was prophesying to the leadership. His name was Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was given the assignment. He was commissioned to build the temple. When they got back, the first order of business was, let's build the temple, because that's something that gave them identity as a people of God, who they really were. It's the same thing with the church. What gives us identity that's different than any other group that gathers or any other community is the presence of God among us. We are a people of God and we're a community of God. So his job was to set and inspire people. Let's go back. Let's build the house of the Lord. And so they're back. And he's trying to get people to build this temple. And no one's showing up for work. And they've been there about 10 or 12 years and he hasn't made the progress that he wanted to make. The place is still a mess. Maybe they started enthusiastically, but somewhere along the line, they got preoccupied. Now, I know what they were doing because Haggai prophesied to them. And this is what his prophecy, he was, you guys say it's not time to build the house of the Lord, but you're finding plenty of time to build your own houses. So they were preoccupied in looking after themselves and neglecting the house of the Lord. So... Zerubbabel is a guy who represents for us what isn't happening. And he's really like a lot of us in this room. There's a lot of things that's not happening that we want to see happen. And the work is unfinished. And he's unable to inspire people to come and help him to finish it. And so it's just, he's just a failure. He feels the weight of the demands and the weight of his responsibility 
and it feels the weight of inspiring people to show up and work and clear out the rubble and to build the house of the Lord, but he can't pull it off. He's inadequate. Which is not unlike many of us in this room who feel our own inadequacy and the inability to pull off what we feel we would like to pull off. He, he did the right thing. And like us sometimes, we do the right thing and we expect more. We expect a particular result. But it wasn't happening. And failures pile up and so he's trying. He's trying harder. It's like, I'll, I'll give this another go. I'll work at it harder. And he, he's also no doubt plagued with fear. I'll never get it done. This is never, ever really going to happen. So here's the question I have for you. What are the unfinished areas of your life that it's like this rebel? You're unable to make progress. You're unable to see it done. See, we live in a world that's pretty heavy on law and pretty light or short on grace. And it's a world that works this way. Performance equals achievement and achievement equals approval. And it's a conditional world. It starts early in life. Eat your broccoli and if you eat your broccoli... You can have dessert. Now, at present time, I have a great-granddaughter living with me. She's two and a half. She's pretty cute. And she's pretty active. She calls me Paw Pops. I'll tell you what, I forgot how exhausting it was to have kids around the house. <laughs> and she'll come into my study, and she'll say, Come on, Paw Pops. Where? What? Come with me. Come with me. What, 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 where? Come with me. Come on, Pop Pops. And then the next thing I know, she says, I want a cookie. <laughs> I said, you didn't eat your, your lunch. You didn't, you didn't eat your lunch. Doesn't matter. I want a cookie. I said, eat your lunch and you can have a cookie. She's not going to eat her lunch. She's going to work Pop Pops so she gets that cookie. So it works that way. Eat your broccoli, eat your, eat your lunch, and you get a cookie. Or if you study hard and get good grades and you achieve in sports and drama and band, your parents will be proud of you. They'll come out and they'll take pictures of you. Put them on Facebook. <laughs> if you work hard, you'll make some money. If you make some money, you can buy a car. And if you have a really nice car, she may go out with you. And if you treat her nice, she might stick around. And she might marry you. And if she marries you, you might get that promotion at work. Of course, it means more responsibility. Promotions always mean more responsibility. Usually twice to work for a quarter of the pay. But if you have a bad quarter or a bad year, there might be cutbacks. And you could lose your job. And you wouldn't be able to take care of your family. You know that picture? That's the world we live in. It's a conditional world. I learned some of those things fairly early in life. When I went off to school, I don't know how old I was, maybe 
I know I went to school as five. I don't know how old the story is. Six or seven or something like that. All I know is there's a very pretty girl named Kay. And I had a big bag of candy, and Kay used to walk with me to school and would eat some of that candy. And after school, we'd walk back. We'd sit in the backyard, and we'd eat some of my candy. She was pretty. (laughs) She was my first love, and she broke my heart because I ran out of candy. (laughs) It's the world we live in. I didn't learn that. I went off to college, and I had a really old car that had the floorboards were rusted out. And where I grew up in Iowa was a lot of those limestone gravel roads, and they're full of dust, you know. So if you went somewhere, by the time you arrived, you... It looked like there was a fog inside your car. <laughs> and you get out and you'd hit your shirt and dust would fly like those cattle drovers, you know. Girls didn't want to go out with me. But one day, I got a nice car. And when I got a nice car, Mary went out on a date with me. And I remembered, I think Kay only liked me for my candy. And I think Mary only liked me for my car. It's the world that says there's no free lunches. You know that world? Sure you do. And the demands never stop. And the result is the failures pile up and fear set in. And you begin to worry about other people and what will they say and what will they think. And, and, and then life gets harder and we try to make things happen and we do our best to, to do better, to, to be better. And it's because it's a world that's a, kind of a conditional world. Achievement equals approval. Accomplishment precedes acceptance. And it works right down into your relationships including even marriages for sure. How many of you have ever heard this marriage is 50-50? You ever heard that one? I want to know who's keeping score. Because sometimes it seems to me that 50-50 thing, it means 595. Right? But it's not 50-50. It's a, it's a hundred zero. In other words, it's about giving. It's about loving. But, but it works in marriage and relationships. It's a world of reciprocity in relationships and in careers. It's like, you do this for me, and I'll do this for you. Now, I understand we want to serve people. And we want, I have something called the love bank. And the love bank is where I make deposits with my relationship for my wife. It's when I fix the faucet. I wash her car. I rub her back. I'm making deposits in the love bank because this, it's pretty difficult because eventually I'm going to make a withdrawal inadvertently. And if you have nothing in the love bank, you are insufficient funds, and that's not a good place to be in marriage. Give me three steps to a happy marriage. You probably got those this weekend, didn't you? Or last weekend, was it? Last week, yeah. If you forget it. If I do this, you'll do that. We live in a conditional world. Have you ever met someone I have who spent their entire life trying to live up to their parents' expectations? 
And even after their parents die, they still are in that bondage, never quite feeling they've lived up to their parents' expectations or approval. So the message is, again, accomplishment precedes acceptance and achievement precedes approval, and it gets carried over into how you look at God. If I do well, God will bless me. But if I disobey him, he won't bless me. You carry that over into your relationship with God. And you know that's true. You know you live with that. And we fail and we don't do what we feel God is asking us to do or God wants us to do. And we feel, therefore, we have incurred the disfavor of God. Sometimes you try to do better and you fail. We all fail. And you keep trying. And then you keep apologizing to God. And you say, God, I'll do better. Or you say, God, if you forgive me this time, I won't ever do it again. Guess what? You'll do it again. It's a trap. God, I'm going to do that. And then you don't. And you fail. And eventually what happens to people in that scenario is they quit. Now, they don't quit sometimes externally. Still go through the motions. But inside, you've actually quit. You just... Don't even try anymore. And maybe you're living with things like that, an unfinished area of your life, a certain amount of rubble in your life. And when I look at you, let me just say, all of you have some rubble in your life. Except maybe me. <laughs> I have a whole mountain of it. We're all unfinished. We want to change. We want to be better. We want to do better. I have some good news for you. Because sometimes this whole scenario that I've been building up, painting a picture of, that you've carried over into your walk with God, we begin to think that's what it means to be a Christian. And you can look around here, and everyone looks nice. They've washed their hair. They smell nice. And you think they've got it together. I don't have it together. If, they, if that person sitting next to me over there only knew what was really in my mind, what I did, oh, I hope they never find out. And you think they have it together, and you don't have it together. Is that what it means to be a Christian? Well, here's the good news I have for you. The gospel is good news. That's what it means anyway. The good news is the Bible is not a witness to the best people making it up to God. It's a witness to God making it up to the worst people. The Bible is really a story about him and what he's done. And it's a long story of God meeting our rebellion with his rescue. It's a story of God meeting our sin with his salvation It's a story of our guilt and his grace and our badness and his goodness and our weakness and his strength. That's the story of the Bible. The overwhelming focus of the Bible is not the work that you do. It's the work he's done for you. The Bible is not a recipe book for Christian living. Rather, it's a revelation of Jesus. Who's the answer to our own Christian living? 
So back to Zerubbabel. He's in a mess. He sees the rubble of his own life, the unfinished task. He looks at the irregular silhouette that simply mocks him. It speaks of failure. It's a badge of failure. I'm doing my part. I tried. God doesn't seem to be doing his part. And then, or we, we, we go through this. Probably Zerubbabel went through this. I could do better. Of course you could do better. But don't somehow believe the lie that because you could do better and didn't do better that God won't do anything. He berated himself. He focused on his own failure. And that's when God comes to him through the prophet Zechariah like God wants to come to you today. I have a word for you. This is a very good day for you. Because you can leave today more free than you ever thought you could be. With more joy than you ever thought possible. You can leave this place a changed person because of what God does for us. In the midst of his failure and inability to do the job, God comes with not one word of accusation, not one word that you could do better. I'm amazed of God's love and mercy. And he comes, Zechariah says to him, I have a word for you from God. This is going to get done. Well, it's not going to be done by your own might, by your own power, by your own abilities, by all that you've been trying to do to get done, your own sense of self-discipline of and, and, and willpower and making up your mind to do. It's not going to be done by that way. It's going to be done by my spirit, says the Lord, as you shout grace, grace to it. It's a word that this is going to be accomplished in his life. And it's a word for you that it will be accomplished in your life as a result of God's grace, his spirit. Not natural giftings, not strategy, not even willpower, not even determination to try harder, not natural gifting. But he comes and he brings him hope and he brings him a word of grace, which I hope God's wanting to bring to you here today that you're going to receive. And he receives the word. Now. I want to speak just for a moment more about what this grace is. I I read a book by a guy named Paul Zoll, and the book is called Grace and Practice, and he makes several statements that I found interesting. He said, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is God's love coming at you, but it really has nothing to do with you. He said, grace is being loved when you're unlovable. Only God can do that. And the cliche definition of grace is unconditional love. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. It's not based on condition. It's not based on the fact that you did well. Grace is unconditional love. He said, grace is love that has nothing to do with you, how well you do. It has everything to do with the lover. Our Lord. He says grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts. 
Grace reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Well, that's pretty good news because I stub my toe a lot and it hasn't changed God's love for me. But I'd like to add to that and say grace is more because really what grace is, it's God's power in action on your behalf. How many of you know God has a lot of power? The scripture says he's on, basically the word, theological word is omnipotent. He's all powerful. You know, all powerful means you can't get any more than that. And grace is God's power on your behalf. Grace is the tangible manifestation of his power on your behalf and his purpose. Grace is an act of God alone. It's self-motivated and, and pure and it flows from his throne. But it has direction. It flows toward you. Grace is directed power of God. It's not indiscriminate. Now there's something called general grace. That's the reason the sun rises and you're breathing air today and it rains. But specifically on your behalf, God's power is directed toward you and your need. It's the onworking of God on your behalf in exchange of your inability to do things on your own behalf. Now, there are certain scriptures that have blessed me so much in my life. And one of them is this. It's found in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And it'll add a little light to this. It's where Paul has struggling with a weakness in his life. And he's done what you do when you struggle with a weakness in your life. He prayed. He asked God to help him with it. Take it away. He said he prayed three times. He didn't get an answer. Three times. He kept praying. God, take this thing away. I want to be different. This is a weakness. Please help me. He didn't get an answer. Finally, God answered him in, in verse 9. And he said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, sometimes I take little parts out of the Bible just to help me. But I'll put them right back. I want you to know it's not permanent. So those six words, my grace is sufficient for you, I took out the middle part. My grace for you. Whose grace is it? His. Who's it for? Yeah, me. My grace for you. I'm weak. I've got this problem. God, help me. Take it away. God says, my grace, which is his power, his amazing power, my grace is for you. That means that God's grace or his power has intelligent direction. It's, it's not just indiscriminate. It's, it's, it's like grace is like water. It flows to the lowest part. My grace for you. However bad your sin is, however bad your failure is, my grace, it, that's, that's its direction. It flows down from his throne to you. Romans 5, 8 says this way, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> My grace for you. I was a sinner. I didn't deserve anything, but Christ died for us. Well, I'm still a sinner. I didn't, if I, I'll get better. I'll, I'll go to church. I'll do, then, then God will be, no, no. Well, I was a sinner. Christ died for you. 
our extremity is its opportunity. I read the Bible. God gives grace to all the wrong people. You see it over and over again. Jesus does it all the time. He gives grace to prostitutes, the IRS, (laughs) tax collectors, betrayers, the adulteress, the Samaritan woman. The most extravagant sinners of Jesus' day Receive the most compassionate welcome. Oh, joy. Because I'm the wrong person. I'm the wrong person. He gives grace to all the wrong people. People who don't deserve it. That's me. It's recklessly generous. His grace is uncomfortably promiscuous. It refuses to be controlled by our own innate sense of fairness and reciprocity. If I do this, maybe God will do that. It defies logic. It has nothing to do with my merit or deservedness. Nothing whatsoever. It's unconditional acceptance. Maybe you've caught a glimpse of it in life. I mean, I have several times. I remember when uh, I, I was too young to drive, but my brother was, and we, we were a poor family, and we had, like, one car. It was the old Oldsmobile, and we decided to see how fast the old gal would go. And we went to the top of Lake Wapalo Hill, which is shoo. We figured gravity would work in our favor to increase the speed. We floorboarded her. By the time we hit the bottom, we'd blown the engine. The only car my dad had to get to work in, we blew the engine. We knew we were wrong. We knew we were guilty. We felt bad enough. Instead of my father saying, you guys, you know what you... Yeah, we already knew that. He was lenient with us. His undeserved grace. Maybe you said something insensitive to a spouse or someone important. And they didn't hold it against you. I read a story uh, in the New York Times. Actually, it was published in 2009. I've taken some experts out of it. It's by Laura Munson about the near dissolution of her marriage. And this is what she tells of the painful afternoon when her husband came after 30 years of marriage. And out of the blue, she totally, totally blindsided her. Out of the blue, he told her, I don't love you anymore, and I want out of this marriage. And this is what she said. She said, my husband's words came at me like a speeding fist, like a sucker punch. Yet somehow in that moment, I was able to duck. And once I recovered and composed myself, I managed to say, I don't buy it. I don't love you. I want out of this marriage. She said, I don't buy it. She said, because I didn't. And instead of rising to his very hurtful words and responding in kind, she surprised herself, she said. By holding her tongue, she knew her husband had been going through a real hard time in his career. She knew he didn't feel very good about himself. And she felt he was transferring that over to their relationship. 
Again, to quote her, she said, You can bet I wanted to sit down and persuade him to stay, to love me, to fight for what we've created. You can bet I wanted to, but I didn't. I barbecued, made lemonade, set the table for four, loved them from afar. And one day, there he was, home from work early, mowing the lawn. A man doesn't mow his lawn if he's going to leave it, at least not this man. <laughs> then he fixed the door that had been broken for eight years. He mentioned needing wood for next winter, the future. Little by little, he started talking about the future. And it was Thanksgiving dinner that sealed it. My husband bowed his head and humbly said, Dear Lord, I'm thankful for my family. He was back. Grace. It's the only thing that's had any power in my life. I know people are afraid if you talk about this, people will just go off the rails and they'll go out and sin. Well, I don't believe that. It's the only thing that's had power in my life. It made the difference between joy and sadness, gratitude and entitlement. It's the other way. You do well, you think God owes you something. It makes the difference between life and death. And I used to live with a big list of things that I was going to accomplish and, and people needed to help me accomplish. And I was hard on myself, but I was even harder on others. Grace has saved my marriage and has saved my relationship with my kids. And it's given me a relationship with my grandkids. They know what I believe. They also know I love them. No, I'm not afraid to talk to me. They're my Facebook friends. I hate the stuff they put on there. Grace comes from outside of us. It's external. And it comes to Zerubbabel. Outside of himself, with assurance, it's going to be completed. Ephesians 2, 10 says, We are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? Tell me. His. You are. His. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. <laughs> Philippians 1.6. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can... This is money in the bank. This is ironclad guaranteed. It's God who started the work in you. It's God who saves you. It's God who started this in you. And you might feel, I'm not doing very well. But this is what he says. I'm sure of this. He began a good work in you. He's going to bring it to completion. <laughs> it's a surprise. He says things like that when I know I don't deserve it. And so, what's your great mountain today? What's the rubble in your life? What's your own personal disappointment with yourself and with others? Circumstances piled up, rubble, unfinished tasks, inability, inadequacy to do better, to be better, all of that stuff. We understand reciprocity. It's the way our world is. The harder I work, the luckier I get. Or how about this? Some people think this is in the Bible. The Lord helps them who helps themselves. It is not in the Bible. Grace has nothing to do with us. 
It's outside of us. And it comes. He says, it's going to be accomplished when you shout grace, grace to it. Now, I, I don't know what this is like. Zechariah and Zerubbabel, they're together, and they're looking at this unfinished task. People aren't showing up. His inability and inadequacy. It's going to be done with two things, by my spirit and by grace. By my spirit means my presence, and grace means my power. That's how it's going to be done. Come on, Zerubbabel. Grabs you by the hand. Let's walk around this rubble. Let's say it. Come on, say it. People are walking by. Grace, grace. No, no, shout great grace. Shout? Yes, shout. He begins to lift his voice, and they shout. They shout. Now imagine people walking by and say, well, the old boy's finally going over the bend here. He's talking to rocks now. But he's, he's not passive. You understand, I'm not talking about passivity here. I'm talking about laying hold of something by faith and saying, my God can do this. What I can't do, he can do. Your presence, God, and your power, this is how it's going to be done. Because Jesus has come to set the captives free. Two men, Luke 18. i got to hurry here. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a religious guy. You would have liked this guy, kind of. I wouldn't like him. He was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. These guys get a bad rap, don't they? There's a reason for that. Anyway, the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes. I'm entitled. I get up every day at 6 o'clock and I pray for two hours. I do this. I read my Bible. I read a chapter a day and keeps the devil away. I do this stuff. But the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. My grace for you. Outside of us, for us. Power is perfected in weakness.